Jesus, we thank you that you are our bread of life and that, Lord, you feed us and you nourish us. So as we come before, uh, come under the sound of your word now, Father, we pray for you to anoint uh, our brother Kapo, that, Lord, he will be able to speak uh, the words that you have for us. I pray that, Lord, you will lay the words you have for us upon his heart, that even as it proceeds out of his mouth, Lord, it will bless, it will convict, it will do the work, Lord, that you intend it to do. I pray for our hearts, that, Lord, you always make our hearts tender, Lord, and obedient to your word. You will always make our spirit sensitive, Lord, to your truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Vincent. Um, good afternoon. It's past noon already. Have you, have you ever been angry? I'm, I'm sure you have. Huh? Some, some weeks ago, I came back from uh, work a bit late and there was no dinner for me because I did not intend to go home so early. I showed up earlier, back home. So I went down to a nearby restaurant near where I live to uh, do a takeaway. So I, I walked on this place. It was about um, 7, no, 7, 10, 7, 15, something like that. And it was about two-thirds empty. So only one-third of the tables were filled. Uh, so I went to the cashier and I placed my order for takeaway and I just sat down, you know, in a, in a table just near the cashier. So I just waited and waited. Then before long, there were, there were other people who came into the restaurant. They sat down and they took their orders. The orders were taken. And there was this lady who came in and like me, she wanted to buy a takeaway. So she went to the cashier like me and she placed an order, quite a large order apparently. And then she sat down on the table opposite where I was sitting. Then shortly after that, another lady came and did the same thing and placed another set of takeaway orders. And then she sat somewhere else. And then I waited and I waited. Then after a while, about 15 minutes or so, I got a little bit worried that this was taking a bit too long. So I went up to the cashier and I said, um, I've waited a while already, you know, how is my order? And then uh, she looked at me and said, okay, wait, let me check. So she went into the kitchen and came out a minute later and said, oh, okay, it's coming, it's coming. So I waited and I waited. After a while, those others who came into the restaurant, who sat down and did their orders, they were not taking away, they were just simply having uh, dining in. I saw the food arriving on the tables. And after a while, I saw this lady who sat in front of me, who placed the order for takeaway, pay for her order and walked out. And after a while, the other lady came and went to the cashier, paid her order and walked out. So I waited almost like 25 minutes already. Right? So I decided that I was going to do something about it. So I walked up to the cashier again and I said, excuse me, uh, you know, I, I, I don't mean to complain, but you know, I've been waiting here for about 25 minutes. Can you, can you check what's wrong? You know, I'm just too long. You know, other people after me got served before me. So she nonchalantly calmly, walked back into the kitchen, came out, then she told me, I'm sorry, your order was placed in the wrong stack. Okay, fine. So I was a little bit upset already. Uh, in fact, I was in fact, fuming inside because I was waiting for almost half an hour. In the end, the order came about five minutes after that, and I walked out, and 
I swore in my heart that day, I will never go to this restaurant. Again. Anyway, the food was lousy. So that's a good enough reason not to go back there. I was indignant. I was angry. And as I thought about this incident preparing for the message, I, I asked myself, why, why was I angry? Why? If you were in my shoes, I think you will understand, right? It's so obvious because it's so unfair. I came first, but why did someone else, and there were many, 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 many of those someone else's who came later, but who got served before me. So there was, there was this sense of unfairness, this sense of injustice. But as I, as I thought about it more, I, I realized that the real reason for my anger was the offense which the long wait caused to my ego, to my pride. And when we look at the Gospels, we see quite a few instances when Jesus was angry, when he was indignant. Today is the first of a series of three messages on this subject. Next week, I'm not exactly sure whether the second service follows the same routine as the first, but at least for the first service, the second, the, the week, uh, next week and the week after, uh, we look at other passages that talk about the same topic, Jesus being angry and indignant. Um, in Matthew 21, Jesus overturned the tables and he drove out the merchants who were desecrating the temple. And following that, there'll be an episode in Mark 10 where Jesus was upset with his disciples, not with the Pharisees, not with the Jews, but at his disciples who tried to stop some people from bringing children to him for blessing. And as we read those incidents, you realize that there's another side. There's another side to the image that we sometimes have of a Jesus who is gentle and mild, a Jesus who is quite emo, a Jesus who carries babies, blesses children, and weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Instead, we see a picture of a Jesus who cracked the whip, who drove out money changers and merchants in the temple, who had strong words at some of the religious leaders of the time, and who even rebuked his own disciple, Simon Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. So, like, like me, in the recent incident I described to you, Jesus was offended and indignant. But unlike me, his offense was not personal. It was not personal nature. It had nothing to do with his ego. It had everything to do with his jealousy for God's glory as the merchants went to desecrate the temple with all the commercial things. It, was, it had everything to do with his anger at the hardness of the religious people's hearts and at the oppression of sin upon ordinary people. Our text this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Going on from that place, he went into the synagogue, and the man with the shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Verse 14, But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. You know, you see a big contrast in this passage. 
between Jesus and the Pharisees. On the one hand, we see the blindness of the Jews, the Jewish leaders. Think about the setting in this passage. It was, it was in a synagogue on a Sabbath. The synagogue. This was the place where the Jews met for worship every Sabbath. And it was the centre of their religious life. And historians tell us that there were around 480 synagogues in Jerusalem in the first century AD. 480 of them. Somewhere in one of those 480 synagogues, there was a man with a withered hand. Luke tells us that it was his right hand that was deformed and withered. And this man was believed to be a stonemason. In other words, he was some kind of a builder who works with stone. And most likely, this guy met with an accident while working with some heavy stones. And as a result, he might have lost his job. So why was he in the synagogue? Well, maybe he was just fulfilling his religious duty to assemble with other Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Maybe he wanted to be healed so that he could return to work and earn a living. Now, think back about the passage again. Notice, notice that it was the Pharisees who straight away connected Jesus with this man with a deformed right hand. Before Jesus actually did anything, not a word, no healing yet, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees asked, and I suppose they addressed the congregation. They did not address Jesus directly, I think. My guess is that they addressed the whole congregation that was gathered. They asked if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus had not healed, had not done a thing. All right? And that they asked the audience, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You know, that is to Jesus' credit. They knew that it was so much in his character that he could not see suffering and not do anything about it. But at the same time, while giving credit to Jesus, they were also looking for a reason to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath law. I think they could predict what Jesus would do to heal. And so they were really trying to trap Jesus and tell everybody that this is not an obedient Jew who listens to the law. So let, let, let's take a step back. All right, we've got a picture in your mind about what happened that day. Let's take a step back and, and put a story in its context. There was conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, and the relationship between them did not start that way. Initially, they were filled with admiration at what Jesus was doing because Jesus was healing the sick, he was teaching the crowds, and he's, he gave such profound teaching that jaws dropped. And some of the leaders even invited Jesus to their houses for a meal, and that's usually a sign of friendship. But, but when Jesus started to, started to claim authority to forgive sins, a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 9, they thought, the Jewish leaders thought that Jesus was blaspheming. He was, blaspheme, he was blaspheming. And shortly after that, Matthew tells us that he made himself a friend of tax collectors and sinners, eating and drinking with them in Matthew's house. And in doing so, he started to challenge the leader's ideas of what it means to be pure and righteous before God. For the Jews, to be pure and righteous means you separate yourself from all this scum, you know, all these sinners, all these tax collectors and prostitutes. You separate yourself from them because that's the way to keep yourself pure and untainted. 
In Matthew chapter 9, verse 31, after Jesus healed a demon-possessed dumb man, the leaders were so annoyed, so annoyed, or maybe the word is threatened, they were so threatened that they attributed Jesus' miracle to the devil. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you know this story. And the Pharisees said in verse 34, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So by the time we reach Matthew 12, the chapter we're looking at, the relationship between the Jews and Jesus was already totally broken. It was irreparable. And in the early part of the chapter, chapter 12, the disciples of Jesus were hungry and they he, he plucked grains from the grain fields on the Sabbath. Again, it's the Sabbath. Huh? And the Pharisees were alarmed at such, at such audacity. Hello, Jesus. It's Sabbath, you know. How could your disciples, your disciples, be plucking grain? That is work. And that is a total disregard for the holy laws of Sabbath. So now, in this passage, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 14, the Sabbath issues, the, the Sabbath issues appears again. Matthew, tell, Matthew tells us in verse 14 of the same chapter that after this incident, what did the Pharisees do? They began to plot his death, Jesus' death. They began to plot Jesus' death. So in other words, they were so upset at Jesus over the Sabbath issue that they began to plot Jesus' death. So we ask ourselves, how come, how come the Pharisees were so hung up? How come the Pharisees were so hung up over Sabbath? You know, during the, the time of, of Jesus, observing the Sabbath had become a tyranny with hundreds of rules and regulations. It, it didn't start that way. Initially, the Jewish rabbis wanted to, to capture or, or find the essence of the teaching of the law, the, Moses, the law of Moses, the Torah, into, into practical guidance to help ordinary Jews live their lives. So they developed these rules and regulations which, which, which became written down in a book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah. The Mishnah is a massive book. Right? I haven't seen it myself, but I understand it's a massive book. Uh, apparently, if you Google it and you find English translation, it has over 800 pages. And in order to help ordinary Jews understand the Mishnah, the scribes, all these religious teachers, wrote a commentary known as the Talmud. I downloaded a, a portion of the Talmud on the Sabbath. You Google it. And I found that the English translation in PDF huh, had 511 pages. 511 pages just on the Sabbath alone. I kid you not. I kid you not, 500 pages. You don't believe me, you try it. Sabbath, in Hebrew, is Shabbat. And Sabbath was the most sacred symbol of the Jewish religion. You know, the Jews had different things that marked them out from other religions at the time, in the Old Testament days. They had sacrifices, sorry, they, they had sacrifices, they had circumcision, you know, they had the temple. But the interesting thing is that all these things all these things had, had, had parallels, had similarities in, in other religions of the time. But the Sabbath, the Sabbath was unique. There was nothing like the Sabbath among all the religions of the people 
who were not Jews in those days. And the Sabbath originated, as we all know, from God's creation in the book of Genesis. Six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, what did He do? He rested. And Sabbath was a reminder to the Jews of their former slavery in Egypt. Look at this verse. Deuteronomy 5.15 Moses tells the people of Israel, remember you were slaves. The Lord your God brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So God in His mercy recognizes that, that man, you and I, cannot work or cannot study seven days a week. He needs to be refreshed. He needs to be recharged. So it was good, it was right, and it was joyous and a blessing for man to observe the Sabbath and to delight in the presence of God. And that, that blessing is, is well described by the use of the word that we saw earlier. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Sabbath peace. But by the time of Jesus, Sabbath had, had become so twisted by the Jewish leaders that the blessing, the blessing on Sabbath became a burden. The blessing became a burden. Under the law of Moses, to violate the Sabbath, to work on the Sabbath, was punishable by death. Exodus chapter 31, verse 14. Six days' work is to be done. The seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath is to be put to death. Put to death. So this was a penalty for disobeying the Sabbath law. History, eh? not our favorite subject, but history has it that it was because the Jews insisted on keeping the Sabbath that the Roman general by the name of Pompey was able to capture Jerusalem in AD 63. Now, in, in ancient warfare, apparently it is quite common for the attacking army to erect some kind of a hillock or mound that overlooked the city under siege and from there, the attacker can bombard, can bombard the city. So, so Pompey built this, this mound on the Sabbath days when the Jews simply looked on and refused to lift a hand to stop him. Reflecting on this incident, one, one Greek historian, can't pronounce his name, wrote, There are a people called the Jews who dwell in a city, the strongest of all cities, which the inhabitants call Jerusalem and are accustomed to rest on every seventh day, at which time they make no use of their arms, their weapons, their arrows, their swords, their spears, nor do they meddle with husbandry. Right? In other words, look after their cattle or their um, sheep. Nor do they take care of any of the affairs of life. But instead, they spread out their hands in the holy places and pray till evening time. Now it came to pass that when Ptolemy, the son of Lagos, came into the city with his army, these men, these, these Jews, in observing this mad custom of theirs, instead of guarding the city, suffered their country to submit itself to a bitter lord. And their law was openly proved to have commanded a foolish practice. Now that's all English, so it's a bit hard to figure out what they're talking about. But you caught the words, mad custom, foolish practice. right? And a practice in which the Jews would observe even if it cost them their lives. 
But during the time of Jesus, their daily lives were not so dramatic as being attacked by Roman soldiers. So in those days, many Jews were shepherds. You know, it was an agricultural society. They planted crops. They also looked after animals. And many of these, in order to protect the sheep and the cattle from being attacked by wolves, what the, what the Jews did was to build pits and, uh, mount, uh, and, and, and uh, trenches around the sheep pen so that the wolves, the predators, if they try to attack the sheep, they may just fall in and get trapped. But sometimes the problem with that, that, that formula is that the livestock and the sheep may also fall into those pits by mistake. And the Sabbath laws of the time as set out in the Mishnah and the Talmud allowed a person whose sheep fell into a pit to carry food to the sheep on a Sabbath. Right? So it's okay to feed the sheep that fell in to the pit. But they were not allowed to rescue the sheep that fell into the pit. Because why? Rescue is work, but feeding is not. You have to eat, right? Sunday or Sabbath or any other day of the week, you still have to feed yourself. So feeding is not work. So you can feed a sheep that fell into the pit, but you cannot lift the sheep out of the pit. That's considered work. Likewise, the law, the Jewish law, the Talmud has it that if a man falls very sick, it's okay to stop him from dying but it's not okay to help him to get well. Now, I have no idea how you can do one without the other. Okay? But apparently, this is the law. Luke chapter 13, there was another incident about healing on the Sabbath. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and there was a woman who came who was crippled by a spirit for 18 years, bent over, could not straighten up. So when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her. Immediately, she straightened up and praised God. Verse 14. Indignant. This is the same word. Indignant. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work. Come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. Clinic closed. Don't come on Sunday. So the Jewish leaders were saying, in effect, Sabbath, no healing. How ridiculous can you get? Go back to our text in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. What, what, was, what was Jesus' reaction to the Jewish leaders who asked that question? Is it lawful to be healed on the Sabbath? There's a parallel passage of this incident in Mark. You know, we look at Matthew, but there are parallel passages in Mark and in Luke. If you look at the parallel passage in Mark, verse 5 tells us that Jesus looked around at them, them meaning the Jewish leaders, in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. This is the real reason for Jesus being indignant. In another translation, this verse in Mark chapter 3, verse 5 reads as follows. I don't have it here, but let me just list, read it out to you. Looking around at them with anger and sorrow at their obstinate stupidity. I like that translation. At their obstinate stupidity. My son always tells me, never call anyone stupid. Huh? Very rude. At their 
obstinate stupidity, anger and sorrow. It's interesting that Mark, of all the gospel writers, is the only one who mentions this point, not in the other two gospel records. Jesus was angry, he was sorrowful and deeply distressed. What was he angry and distressed at? Not at being offended with having to wait a long time when other people get their food, like me. He was angry and distressed at their obstinate stupidity, at their stubborn hearts. And in the face of such great suffering as this man with a wilted right hand, a white right arm, all those smart, clever, intelligent, learned religious leaders could do was to look blindly past the pain of the fellow Jew and tell Jesus, listen, you cannot heal. Because to heal is to break the Sabbath law. How ridiculous can it be? But it was happening. Let's, let's pause for a moment and, and then think about why, why these Jews were so obstinate and so stupid. It's not intellectual, you know. It's not intellectual. Nothing to do with the brains or lack of it thereof. These people were learned men. Mainly men, huh? I don't think there are any women rabbis. Huh? All the men, they're very learned. But why were they so stubborn, so blind, so lacking in insight? Why were they so blind to the need of this man? All they cared about was the separate regulations. Why couldn't they see? Psalm 95, verse 7 to 9 gives us the answer. This is what the psalmist says. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Now what the psalmist was referring to was an incident during the Israelites' 40 years of wandering in the desert after they were freed from Egyptian slavery. Now I'm not going to read the whole passage to you, but in Exodus chapter 7, and that's the main reference where this incident occurred, verses 1 to 7, you will read about this story where the Jews, the Israelites, complained. They reached this place and there was no water to drink. Right? So they complained to Moses and Moses complained to God. Say, God, why are these people complaining to me? You know, I'm not the God. You know, you are. Why, why, are, why are they behaving like that? And then God said, okay, you take your staff, you go to this place, hit the rock and water came out. You know that story. Right? And let me read to you what was recorded in Exodus chapter 17, the last verse of that passage, verse 7, Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. So Moses called that place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Think about it for a moment. What was the context of that passage or what was the context of all that happened? After all the miracles the Lord had done in delivering them from Egypt, ten plagues, you know, Ten plagues, ten great and mighty plagues that was brought upon the nation of Egypt and forced Pharaoh to evict the Israelites. After God appeared to them, you know, in a whirlwind, sorry, not in a whirlwind, as a cloud by day and as a uh, towering pillar of fire by night, after all the wonderful things they saw with their own eyes. A bit of thirst, a bit of hunger, and they say, Where are you, Lord? Where are you? Are you among us or not? No tolerance. No faith. 
So for the Jewish leaders confronting Jesus, back to our passage, their hearts, as the psalmist says, were hardened. Even though miracles were done before their eyes, they simply refused to see like Israel at the time of Moses. They were so blinded by their self-righteousness and, and pride. I'm not sure how many of you have watched this. I, I've, I've watched the musical Le Miserable live, huh? probably twice. But I watched the movie which was released last year. And, you know, uh, it starred Hugh Jackman, Wolverine, right? And Russell Crowe. And um, I watched the movie and I bought the DVD about three times already. So five times. I love it. There's a character in the musical played by Russell Crowe. Inspector Javert. I think that's how they pronounce in French. Huh? You twist your tongue and then you slur a bit. If you, if you read the book by Victor Hugo, the story, the guy who wrote this story behind the musical, and you will, you will learn that Javert, Inspector Javert was, was born in a prison around 1780. And his mother was a fortune teller and his father was a convict prisoner. So because of his family background, a very low-down family background, he felt condemned. You know? So he, he had to prove himself. So either he, be, he has to become a criminal and do a lot of bad things, or he becomes a policeman. You know? So he chose the path of being a policeman and, and, and to become an enforcer of the law. And he became very successful at that. Right? He was a no-nonsense uh, guy. You, you've seen, if you've seen it, you know what I mean. You know, he was at odds with Hugh Jackman, who was uh, uh, playing the role of Jean Valjean, Valjean, Valjean whatever. Um, you know, who was, who was condemned for stealing a loaf of bread, put in prison, in hardship, hard labor, he got freed, then he left. And you know, interestingly, there's a lot of uh, Christianity in that story, where he gave himself to God, although it's more Catholic than Protestant. Okay? But he gave himself to God. But still, still, as far as Javert was concerned, John Valjean was a criminal once, will always be a criminal. So they hunted, he hunted him down. And this is how Victor Hugo the writer describes Javert. Again, I, I'm going to quote to you. Javert, though frightful, had nothing ignoble about him. Probity, sincerity, candor, conviction, the sense of duty are things which may become hideous when wrongly directed, but which even when hideous, remain grand. They have virtues which have only one vice. Error. They have virtues which have only one vice. Error. You know, the, the Jewish leaders during Jesus' time were a bit like that. Actually, they were much worse than Javela. Huh? Uh, but let's give them a little bit of credit. They were learned, very intelligent, clever people. They were just, they were righteous, they had backbone. They had a strong sense of duty and calling. They were Maybe, maybe, even sincere. Unfortunately, they were sincerely wrong. So, my brothers and sisters, let, let, us, let us all be very watchful not to commit the sin of what the psalmist says, hardening our hearts against God in self-righteousness, in pride, blinding ourselves to God's hand of work and healing and restoration of people who are broken around blinding ourselves to the needs of others who are in that terrible state. 
So we see the Jews blind. We see Jesus with a burden. So what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Matthew offers a shortened version of the incident, but Mark and Luke both records that Jesus tells the man to stand up in front of everybody and it was probably a packed synagogue room and Jesus was likely to be teaching and would have stood on some kind of a podium or lectern with the scrolls of the Old Testament open before him. And so he asked the Jews a question. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. It was completely restored. Just as sound as the other. A miracle had been performed. How did the Jews respond? Again, Mark. Mark tells us they kept silent. Not a word. Jesus was saying to the Jewish leaders, you equate doing good and healing the sick as work that the law disallows. But your calculations are wrong. Your interpretation is flawed. Healing the sick, restoring someone to wholeness is not work. It's doing good and totally in harmony with this whole idea of the Sabbath. Remember the phrase, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Which seeks to bring wholeness to broken lives. And look carefully at what Jesus said to the Jews. Not, he didn't say, if you see a sheep fall into the pit. But he said, if you have a sheep and it falls into a pit, surely you will rescue the sheep, even on the Sabbath, because it is your sheep. It is your sheep. So you will rescue it, even though you know that it may be breaching a Sabbath regulation. How much more if the one that falls into the pit is a man who is worth far, far more than sheep. You know, that's a very beautiful phrase. How much more? Verse 12. How much more? I went to um, do a search on this phrase. It occurs several times in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the NRV version, it occurs 10 times, right? And, and I'm going to share with you four examples or four references of this phrase. Luke chapter 11, verses one, uh, 11 to 13. You know this quite well. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Going down to Luke chapter 12. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will He clothe you, you of little faith? 
And finally, the last example, there are others. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? So in contrast to the blindness of the Jews, Jesus' burden was not was to bring healing and wholeness to the man with the withered hand. And not to him only, but to all of us with all our broken lives. And he does so with, with so much generosity and extravagance that is so beautifully captured in the phrase, how much more? How much more? Our God is a, is a generous Heavenly Father who, who exceeds all our expectations. He loves us beyond all measure. You are important to Him beyond price. He pours out extravagantly all His gifts on us, including the Holy Spirit, the best of all gifts. His grace is exceedingly abundant. His salvation, incomparably effective. How much more are we valuable to Him than sheep? How much more will He supply all our needs? How much more will we be saved? I'm going to invite... Um, Caleb and the song singing, the, the music team to come forward and we will sing a closing song. But I'd like to encourage you to consider what we have heard this morning. You know, um, on one occasion when Jesus was teaching his disciples and the crowds, he, you know, he often spoke to them in parables. Right? Not all parables are easy to understand, but he spoke to them in parables. And on one occasion, he quoted from Isaiah and he said about the crowd, about the audience, and sometimes about his disciples, seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they neither hear nor understand. He could just as well apply those verses to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. They do not understand. I pray that that will not be our situation. That all of us would see and hear with spiritual insight and spiritual hearing. That we will be able to look upon the acts of God, the deeds of God, the works of God and the Word of God and not be blind to what the Lord is doing in our midst. Nor will we be blind to the needs of those people around us. Let's stand. Let's stand and sing this closing hymn. It's a closing song. Healing Grace. Show us mercy and 
from the top. remain standing as we go to the Lord of the Prayer. Father, we want to thank you for your amazing grace, your boundless love for us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, we have been reminded again this morning, this afternoon, that Christ died for our sins. The sinless for the sinful for the wretched. And Lord, truly we are so honoured and privileged to be able to receive this gift of forgiveness and even the Holy Spirit that you have promised to us. Lord, we are grateful that you have reminded us again this afternoon of how much more valuable we are to you than sheep, than birds, than the lilies of the field how much more is this salvation that you've given to us than anything, everything that we can ever imagine. Lord, we are just so grateful to you. Lord, we ask that you would deliver us from spiritual blindness, that you will not allow us to be hardened in our hearts by unbelief, by sin, by disobedience as the Israelites were, that we challenge you or we doubt you. Instead, give us hearts that are soft, tender. Give us faith that we might be able to see your hand at work in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. And 
Thank you for Sister Wendy for the compassion you placed in her heart that led her to do what she did. And in doing so, she has seen mighty works of the Lord at work. Lord, we are just so thankful to you. So Lord, this afternoon as we close this meeting, we ask that you will depart with your blessing. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.